You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning or you miss some sermon notes, just stick up your hand. Our ushers would love to get you some of those, or you'll also find a digital Bible and sermon notes on our Redemption app. But if you don't have them, just uh, stick your hand up. It's all right. They'll see you and get them. But again, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians 1. And as you're turning there, today is a great uh, day for joy and celebration in the life of our church. Is it not, Redemption? Yeah. Of all the red letter days, of all the milestone moments that we have had and uh, Lord willing will have, uh, that we get to celebrate at the top of the list is the installation of godly pastors to lead, shepherd, and teach us, right? Uh, Ephesians 4 tell us that godly pastors are one of God's great gifts of His grace to His church for we all need to be led. And so we celebrate God's good gift to us today in appointing Will Mitchell as a pastor among us, right? That's right. You can clap for that. Uh, praise and glory of God, right? And so uh, he is going to be added to our plurality after a lengthy process of uh, assessment and training and examination, and he made it in by the skin of his teeth. No, I'm just kidding. You know. If all this is new to you, by the way, pastoring, eldering, you know, the Bible's design for uh, how a church operates and is governed, we do have some helpful uh, or a helpful resource, uh, this little booklet called Biblical Eldership at the back, that little bookshelf where we give away free books. And I think there's some still at the connection uh, desk out there, but I'd encourage you to read that if this is all new and unfamiliar territory uh, for you. So after we preach, we're gonna, we'll lay hands on he and Melissa, but I want us to come to this portion of God's Word this morning in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, and we'll uh, cross the chapter line into chapter 2, because I want us to grasp this morning God's uh, beautiful design for mutual joy in a church. His design for mutual joy in a church. And as I read this, we're parachuting into uh, an ongoing uh, situation, if you will, in the Corinthian church that Paul is writing on. We'll, I'll explain some of the context as we go, but it may seem a little unusual. It's full of emotion and uh, all kinds of things. How about I just read it and we see what we're getting after and then uh, we'll explore it more fully, shall we? Hopefully you found it there. 2 Corinthians 1, we'll pick it up in verse 23 and uh, continue to chapter 2, verse 4. Paul the Apostle is speaking in the first person, and it says this, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of y'all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, 
but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, this is God's word for God's people with a little Texas uh, version in there. Now, as we come to this text, Paul writing in the midst of it all, I want us to just begin here, for I think we can extract this central claim from these verses. Write it down. It's here on the screen for you as well. And it is simply this, that joy is the aim of a healthy, growing, mutually ministered church. Joy is the aim of a growing, healthy, mutually ministered church. That's as we come to this, as you saw what was repeated, joy over and over here is really what is at the center. Now, as I said, the Apostle Paul is writing yet another letter to this beloved Corinthian church. You see it there. We have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. There are other letters that he writes about that, and he mentions that we're lost and not part of the inspired text. And yet he is writing here and has done really significant ministry in this city. You can read about it in, in Acts, particularly in like Acts chapter 20 and there to the end. And like in any church, the churches that Paul planted in his day, you know, 2,000 years ago, and any church even now, the, the, the church has some problems. As new people are coming to Jesus, as they are uh, leaving behind their sinful way of life and trusting Christ and now seeking to walk in newness of life, that is a process. They're still wrestling with sin. They're still tempted. They still have issues. They don't fully understand the scope of biblical wisdom, and they're being influenced by a very dark and ungodly culture. That's what's going on. And yet, even in the few verses that we read, and especially as you read First and Second Corinthians, you get this sense that Paul uh, has deep affection for these people. He's lived a, a, among them. He knows them. And he has this affection even in the tears, even in the affliction, in pain that is, uh, that is sensed here. And yet, in the middle of this, it on repeat over and over in our few verses, is this concept of, of joy of rejoicing, of being glad, and of sharing in that together. The Corinthians experiencing joy at the ministry of Paul, and Paul uh, uh, experiencing joy at the hands of his beloved uh, 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 Corinthians. Yeah. And so that's why we say that this is, this is the target. Joy here is the target. We're not just chasing the feeling of happiness, but of a deep satisfaction in Jesus. For that's just the simple definition of joy. If you're taking notes and you want to write it down, it's not on the screen here. But joy is just simply that deep soul satisfaction in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how I am feeling, regardless of what is happening in the world or in my family or in my business. Not that those things don't contribute or aren't factors, but regardless of that, as Christians, we want this deep soul satisfaction in Jesus. And thus, if that's uh, what we find, if that's the aim, then we say joy is at the center then of every relationship. In your marriage, amongst your friendships, here in the church, in our small groups, as Christians, it is the goal. Joy is the goal of every Christian relationships. And so thus, mutual joy of living and loving is at the center of every church. And we don't just 
glean this from an obscure passage in uh, the opening lines of, of 2 Corinthians, but this is on repeat, especially as you read the New Testament epistles. This theme of joy amongst believers. Where Paul will end 2 Corinthians. Here's just a few examples. He'll end this letter of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 by saying this. Here it is on the screen. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Right? He's, he's showing there's joy in sacrificial service. Of, of a laying down our life, of working hard, of, of those long days where we're spent or after a long service in kids' ministry and serving for, for kids. There's joy in sacrificial service. But not only this, there's joy in sanctification. He tells the First Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.20, another church in a city called Thessalonica that he planted, a young church. A, 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 they're new in their faith. And he, he says this, for you are our glory and joy. That comes in the context where he's encouraging them to keep growing, to keep maturing in Jesus. And as they are growing and being sanctified, there's great joy in seeing that. And not only this, but the writer of Hebrews gives us a vision for joy in submission. Listen to this verse, Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, there's great joy when we submit to those who are godly and leading amongst us, right? Especially when you pair this with verse 7. It's not on the screen, but we're told to uh, obey our leaders and imitate their way of life, how they live a godly life. And so it makes it a joy to respond, to submit to those who are leading amongst us. Groaning, grieving shepherds are no advantage, right? As they, especially because of our sin, as our sin makes it difficult to, for those to shepherd us, it's the, the, the disadvantage is ours. And I know, I know, we bristle at words like this, don't we? We bristle when we're told to obey, to submit. That just goads against our independence, doesn't it? And yet, when joy is the center a mutual joy existing between leader and member, it, is, uh, it, it, it makes the submission all that much more enjoyable. See, leaders labor with joy and for the joy of others. We all obey with joy and for joy uh, of those who lead us and everyone around us. For all of us are led by someone, aren't we? Right? Is anybody in here not being led or not influenced by anybody else? No, we, we all are, maybe not willingly, but all of us, we live in a country, we, all, we have governmental leaders and all that. But even in the church, and especially in the church, we're all being led by someone. You know, you may be looking, well, you're the lead pastor, Blair. Who do you report to? Well, of course, I report to, to Jesus, as we all do. But here's the beauty of God's complementary, mutually ministered design. I care for and, and lead the elders, and the elders care for and lead me. I submit to them. I love them in the same way that they do me. I, I'm a part of a small group, just like you. I am cared for and led by my small group leaders and, and, and the brothers and sisters in the small group. So I don't get a pass. You don't want me to have a pass, right? All of us, this is our joy 
It is our joy to submit to and to follow those who lead us in godliness. And I know, I know this is hard. You may be thinking, well, they sure don't make me happy, right? But it's a joy is the aim, even if the other person is not making you happy or you don't feel like it. It's a regard. We, we submit, we're filled with joy regardless of how the other is, uh, is doing. In, in, in those cases, we're just on a rescue mission then to care for each other, right? And so you see this all through the scriptures. Joy is the aim. Joy is the center. Joy is the target in any church, in any Christian relationship. And what I love about 2 Corinthians and our passage this morning is it actually is very helpful in giving us a vision for what this looks like. What is joyful ministry? What is joyful leadership all about? How do we have a joyful mutual ministry and what is it marked by? especially for those who elder or pastor. Well, here's what we glean from the text here. Come back to it if you're not there. 2 Corinthians 1. A joyful ministry is marked by integrity. It's marked by integrity. Look at how it begins. Paul here, I know we're jumped in. We're going to get to the context, like I said, in just a minute. But notice who he calls to the witness stand. Who Who does he call in verse 23? But I call... God to witness against me. Now, that's pretty serious, is it not? You know, and sometimes we joke, we're like, God is my witness in this or whatever. But, but there's, there's, it begins with some sobriety here. Like, there's a charge being levied against Paul, like I said, that we're parachuting into. And he's saying, hey, you need to know, like, God knows all that I have done and all that I, uh, and all that I have written and said to you. And he's, uh, he's calling God as his witness because there's been a charge made against him that Paul has not come, that he changed his plans, and now he is fickle. And so he's appealing to his, his, his motive here. I call God as my witness. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Okay? Now, if we were to zoom out here, and we don't have the time this morning, you can read it on your own here, the earlier uh, part of the chapter here, and, and even uh, through the early chapters of 2 Corinthians, to get this uh, sense. They, there's uh, some false teachers in this church that have brought some charges against Paul, namely that, he is, that he's unfaithful and fickle to his ministry. Okay? And so just listen, this. MacArthur explains it this way. I find this uh, very helpful here. As, and this is, I'll just read the quote. He says this, as he, that's Paul, wrote this letter, as it was so often his, in his ministry, he was being mercilessly attacked. Because God so mightily used him, he was a prime target of Satan's attack. This attack, however, deeply disturbed him because it came from his beloved Corinthian church, a church that Paul had given at least 18 months of his life to birth. And the attack came from the church in the form of sin, mutiny, and misrepresentation led by some self-appointed false teachers who sought to discredit Paul and destroy his reputation in the eyes of the Corinthian congregation." End quote. And so you see, they're they're trumping up these things. They're misrepresenting Paul because they're trying to gain some influence. And so the quote goes on. He says, Paul's personal life, his relationships with others, and his ministry were all above reproach. And so as you read through the the, the verses here, Paul will make the case like, hey, no, like, this is why. Here is my motive and why I didn't come. But after just a general response, here the quote picks up the specific charge that was that he was not trustworthy. 
The false apostles claimed that Paul did not always speak the truth, but was unfaithful, fickle, and vacillating. And they supported the trumped-up charge with the flimsiest, most trivial evidence, a change in Paul's travel plans, end quote. And so the fact that he didn't make it on time back to them, the fact that he held off from coming to them, now they are calling his integrity into question. And yet Paul appeals to it. God, who knows all things here, is his witness to show why he didn't. And what did we see as we read? The reason he didn't even come was to not cause unnecessary pain towards them. He didn't want to be this source. They needed some space to work some things out. But Paul, and notice, men and women of integrity have nothing to hide. They know that their life in ministry is known by God and can freely live it out in the open. There's no, uh, it doesn't mean that everything is out in the open for everybody to see, but at least someone knows some uh, these things about them. There are men and women without secrets. And this is especially true for elders, for pastors, for at the top of the qualifications. And 1 Timothy 3 is that a man be above reproach, meaning that he is consistent in his character. He's full of integrity no matter who he is with or where he is. He's the same man at work, at home, at church, in small group, with his closest friends, and with new people. Why? Because he knows he will have to give an account for his life before God. And not only for his own life, but also for how he shepherds and leads others, as we read in in Hebrews 13, right? That is a sobering thought. We will give an account And at the core of this integrity is joy. For why would anyone strive to be a person of integrity when oftentimes the way to get ahead, the way to make more money, the way to gain influence and power is often underhanded? Why? Why, why, would it, why would a Christian, and obviously it's not for self-righteous purposes, so we can pat ourselves on the back, that's a sinful reason. It's for joy, because vertical joy is truly found in being fully known and loved by God, and subsequently being fully known and loved by God's people, by the people around you. Here there is deep satisfaction in not having to hide, and not having to cover things up, and not having to run, but of being fully known and loved in a way that is full of integrity, where we can call God as witness and know the great joy of living a life out in the open. But again, we can't do that by just patting ourselves on the back, for that also comes with the second mark. The joyful ministry is marked by humility. Now, again, it can't be marked by self-righteousness and patting ourselves on the back, but by, by true, genuine humility. For notice how verse 24 begins. Paul appeals to something that is absent in his life. He he says this, not that we lord it over your faith. What is he getting at here, right? In in other words, he's appealing not only to uh, to God as his witness as to why he didn't come, but he's saying, I, when I was among you, my life was not marked by uh, domineering, bullying uh, leadership. I was not just there uh, pressing my own agenda all the time. But that's a mark of unbelieving, of ungodly leadership, isn't it? 
Jesus tells us this in Mark chapter 10, using these same words here. He's like that kind of lording it over, domineering or being a bully or just oppressing our own personal agenda for our own gain, our own. Uh, uh, that's, what, that's what Mark's unbelievers. See, note this here. It's Mark chapter 10. It's, it's a little bit lengthy, but Jesus is teaching his disciples an important lesson. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now stop just for a second. When he talks about Gentiles, what he's saying is like, that's just kind of a catch-all word for everyone else. For the world, the patterns of leadership in the world is to lord it over those who are your subjects. You know, or at least who you think are your, your subjects, right? The boss, it's the person who wants, who, who thinks he's the boss or thinks she's the boss and wants everybody to know it and wields the authority entrusted to them from the Lord with a heavy hand. But look what Jesus says. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is showing this is the way forward of humble servitude, not thinking too highly of yourself, but being quick to even lay down your life of being quick to sacrifice for the good of others. And what's so interesting here, Jesus just lays this out for all godly leadership, for joyful ministry. But Peter in 1 Peter 5 will also apply this specifically to eldering. Look at this also on, on the screen, 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, talking to elders. He says, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And in these verses here, we have really the scope of God's design for what eldering or pastoring is all about. Like literally in these verses here, shepherd or pastor to exercise oversight is, is the eldering uh, directional ministry of the church in a way that is servant-hearted and full of love as called men of God. Why? Now, who do we exemplify? Being examples of whom? Jesus whose very life and ministry was marked by humility. The greatest to ever walk the face of this earth was also the most humble. The gap between greatness and humility of what Jesus left and uh, uh, stooped down, what he condescended towards, has never been greater than God himself leaving heaven's throne and coming, being born as a baby in a stable and then living amongst sinful humans. Jesus' whole life and ministry here on earth was marked by humility and he did it all not begrudgingly, not unwillingly, it's not because amongst the Trinity, Jesus drew the short stick. But he did so joyfully, Hebrews 12 tells us. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, despi uh, endured the cross, despising its shame. Note this this morning, Redemption. Jesus joyfully went to the cross for you. Jesus humbly laid down his life that you might have joy. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. 
He, he joyfully did so, so we could have joy as we turn from our sin and trust in Christ and walk now in life. He giving us his spirit, whose spirit, whose, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is what is joy. Teaching us how to live a life of humility itself. And redemption, isn't it a beautiful thing when a body of believers is marked by humility towards one another? That's where true joy is, is found as we lay down our thoughts of being right all the time, as we lay down our preferences for the joy of another person, when there are leaders humbly serving for the joy of the church and the church humbly and joyfully responding for the joy of the leaders and others around us. It is a beautiful thing. And praise God, we've experienced that and continue to experience redemption. But I know how many of us think, we may be thinking, yeah, that's impossible. I get it, I see the principle at play, but is this even possible? Only by the grace of God is it possible. What is impossible for humans is possible only with God, of having a a mutually joy-filled, humble church like this. And I know many of us in this room, myself included, carry the scars from leaders who have wielded their authority with a domineering or heavy hand. I'm really sorry for that. And maybe it causes us to be cynical or jaded as we even think, like, can this be possible? Is this kind of joy? Is this humility? Is this integrity even possible? We hear the headlines. We see uh, leaders fall all the time. And yet, but by the grace of God, it is possible. It's, it, it is possible. It really it, it is, and it comes through humility. Yeah, and, and let me just say something, like, even right at this moment, like, if I've been the cause of unnecessary pain in your life through, you know, careless words or sinful actions, whether intentionally or unintentionally, would you please forgive me? The grace of Christ has shown to you, would you show that to me? I'm a man in progress as well, just like you. I'm, I'm not perfect. Our elders aren't perfect. The people sitting next to you aren't and so it, it would give me great, uh, you know, a great peace. It would give me great joy if I have done that for you to even tell me after the service or at some point, well, let's meet face to face so I can just humbly acknowledge it, take responsibility for it, and ask for your forgiveness. Because see, if we don't do this, we're just playing into Satan's hand. We're playing into his hand. Uh, it, it, this is actually part of his design. Is designed because what are joy killers, what are the opposite of humility, is unforgiveness and bitterness. I mean, if you don't believe me, Paul actually refers to that. Just jump down to 2 Corinthians 2 10 and 11. I want you to just see this. Like, this is actually like what I'm talking about is part of Satan's design, and we can't, like, for the good of the church, for the joy of one another, for the glory of Christ. We must be humble. We must forgive and extend forgiveness and be or, and ask for it. And so there's, uh, just to give you some of the context, somebody had been sinning, there's a whole issue going on in the church, and Paul is calling them to forgive. And so as you come to verse 10, he says this, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Right? What are his designs? 
to let bitterness and unforgiveness rule in our hearts and destroy relationships, to destroy marriages, to destroy small groups, to destroy churches. And if we want joy, if we want this, then we must be quick to forgive. We must be quick to humble ourselves and to acknowledge these things. See, and this is what happens as the Spirit reorients our thinking, right? As we think, okay, I'm here, I'm committed to these people, I'm committed to the glory of God vertically, I'm here also for others' joy, for their good, I want to look for uh, opportunities, I, need, I want to uh, be quick to suspect myself and take responsibility, I want to extend forgiveness, right? How, how could we not? Like, and so let's be men and women of integrity and also of humility, but see, as we work our way through this, as, we, as we're humble with it, we're also then marked by helpfulness. Because it doesn't just stop here. Like, okay, well, I forgive you. I don't want to lord it over you. But, but follow along. I know I'm kind of bouncing here, but I want us to see this. So verse 24, then he says, Absent in me is this domineering bullying in your faith. But actually, I want to be helpful. But we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. See, ministry is active. The church is the saints in motion, working with one another for a purpose, for two purposes, actually, we see in this section here. What are the two purposes? Why do we come alongside and work with anybody? For their what? For their joy? And we could say it this way, and for their holiness, for them to stand firm in the faith, for them to be confident, for them to, uh, be, to, to be steadfast in holiness. That's why we work for, with one another. That's why as we humbly help one another and live for each other, we do so because we, we want them to grow in joy. We want them to grow in holiness. That's what he's saying. I worked here. I didn't do these things. When I was with you, you know how I live my life. That's what Paul is getting at. All right. I didn't come to you. I love you. I'm not trying not to cause necessary pain. I would not just come and beat things over your head. But actually, I'm trying to come alongside and equip you for your joy and for your steadfastness in holiness. I want, that's, that's my aim. That's my purpose. Right? And that's ours. If we want joyful mutual ministry to exist amongst us, then we must be, uh, we must be uh, purposeful in how we help one another. That's the reason why we even come to church. Like, you're probably familiar with these verses in Hebrews 10. Maybe you're not. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. They're often compelled people, uh, used to compel people to get in church, right? And why did you miss, right? And, and, and it's, you know, it just gets wielded wrongly because there's a more compelling why in these two verses. Let me read it and you tell me why we meet together, how we work with one another. He says this, and let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so what is it? Why, why do we meet? What, what, what is it that uh, obviously beyond our vertical purposes, we come to church, we gather together, we go to small group, we meet, in re- we live in relationship and fellowship with one another. Yes, for the glory of God and with the purpose of what? Yeah, encouragement of considering how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. 
And I want you to see something here. This I, uh, word consider here is not just to like sit back, ponder, write a list, and do nothing about it. Like, hmm, I've considered a few options and then just kind of set it aside. No, to consider actually involves activity. It's to think through, okay, here's what I need to do, and now I am, I am doing it. I am considering. I am coming with a purpose. I am here. You are here this morning for a purpose, to give God the glory. And why do we do that? How do we do that as we help one another be more active in our joy and in our steadfastness and holiness through encouragement, through love, through good works. And there's some urgency to this, isn't there? All the more as you see the day drawing near, the darker the world gets, the more you know we look around and we see culture shifting away from things of the Lord. All the you know, we read the headlines and we freak out that our, we are living in ungodly times, should not alarm us to anxiety and panic, but should motivate us all the more to godliness, to helping one another grow in these ways. And see, here's, here's the thing, church. Like, this is not just the work of pastors to do it. Yes, pastors, yes, elders, lead the charge in this. But Ephesians 4, you can read that chapter later, I've referenced it a few times here, are about the being equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. All of us do this. All of us are about the work of the ministry with the gifts and resources that you have that God has given to you and stewarded to you for the, His glory and others' joy. This is what all of us do. Are you a saint this morning? A set-apart one, a holy one in God, like an actual biblical usage of it, not like, you know, Saint whatever, Maria or whatever, and you get a nice painting with a halo on your head and, you know, hung in, in a church and maybe even the church name, not that. But in the biblical usage, a saint, someone who is set apart and called by God. If that's you, if you're if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. And so we're all called to the work of the ministry. What sets pastors, elders, leaders apart is those who are equipping others to use their gifts towards that way, where we are all working together so that our joy thermometer increases in its temperature. Where we're more fired up. For the things of God together. And so what does this mean to work with another for their joy? Like what is Paul getting at here? Is, it, is he just advocating that we become people pleasers? Is that what he's getting at? <laughs> no, like Galatians 1 throws that option out the window. We work for the approval of God, not to please uh, human beings. That's not what he is. It's not just giving people what they want. It's not just affirming everything that they claim and that they do and say, oh, you're so nice, like, okay, and pats on the back. No, no, there's something more substantive to it. It's a commitment to them having deep satisfaction in Jesus. It's a commitment to them having, being firm in their faith, of not giving up when it's hard. It's a commitment to others of helping them have joy in worshiping in Jesus, in their obedience to Him and encouraging that, not just encouraging an emotion. It's a commitment to, uh, to one another walking faithfully with Jesus and His body and not just like going through the motions of attendance. It's a joy that is found that together we are working for Jesus, together using our gifts to serve in joyful obedience and joyful leadership. And sometimes that might mean saying hard things to point out sin or blind spots. Of speaking the truth in love and praise God for the people in our life that can do that, right? 
Those are times to lean into. Friends like that are the ones you keep close, right? Who do truly love you, who even in the moment may uh, rub you wrong. It is, they're the people that you want in your life because they will bring the greatest joy. Working for someone's joy may mean uh, carrying a heavy weight in, 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 in times of grief, of shouldering some sorrow with compassion and presence in the hard moments may mean bearing big physical or financial burdens when, when, when those times become too much for a person. They call, call for great sacrifice. It means uh, just simply knowing their likes and interests and passions in order to help encourage them and point them to Jesus, right? That's the point. Even if it doesn't feel joyful, even when it's hard, even when it leads to making hard decisions, and that's really what you get, you know, as we cross into chapter two here. See, I think what we're sensing some of the conflict that Paul is feeling in his soul in this text, right? He's wrestling with the right timing of a visit to them. He's wrestling with the right words to say in this letter to him. Second Corinthians is one of the hardest uh, books of the Bible to preach. Most of Paul's letters are very linear. They follow a logical flow. You you can just trace it through and he's got a name. Second Corinthians is like this jumbled up emotive uh, uh, kind of spaghetti bowl of, of thoughts. But you know what is very obvious through these first verses? Is Paul's great love for these people. See, joyful ministry is lastly marked by love. A joyful mutual ministry has these ingredients, integrity, humility, helpfulness, and sacrificial love. A sacrificial love that is grieved by their sin, but is refraining from uh, from unhelpful wounding and pain. He's not wanting to increase the problem here. And don't make this mistake. Like Paul is like trying to cower from the truth. Like, oh, I have some hard things to say. I don't know if I really want to. Like Paul has no problem saying hard things. I think what we're witnessing is him exercising some self-control for what is best for the sinning person, for this church, for the situation. And we're getting the raw and real Paul in his writing in these verses, Right? He, he himself is hurting because of their sin, but he won't let it cause him to sinfully lash out or hurt them unnecessarily, even when he may want to lash out. But no, he's hopeful for the Holy Spirit's work in their heart, for the Spirit to bring some conviction right there at this place, I think, as you get the context and you take it all in, where they, that no more of Paul's words could have changed anything, Right? He, he had taught them all they needed to know. He had been there. They knew, they, they knew what they needed to do. They knew what was right. And they, nothing more that he could say was going to, to change them. They just needed some space and some time to do so. And, and parents or teachers in the house this morning, you, you, you could probably identify with this, right? Maybe you've been in a place like this with one of your kids or your students, right, where you've said all there is to say. You've taught all that is right and wrong and the consequences and the things uh, that they need to succeed, whether in the situation to make it right or on the assignment or whatever it might be. And anything that you say at, at this point will only you know, muddy the, the waters, will only exacerbate the situation or raise the, the emotion levels. Any parents ever been in that place? Teachers, you know what I'm talking about here? Right? 
You've said it all, and they're stewing that, you know, they just need some time to think about it. The Holy Spirit needs to do His work in their heart and mind to whether bring the conviction or motivate the obedience or whatever it is. And apparently that same dynamic is at play here in Corinth. Paul's written all he has to say. He wants to be there. He wants to meet. He wants to share in the mutual joy that they have so often shared. But he can't. For he knows that his absence, even as he loves them, would create the longing. That as he is a part, that this would then create the appetite of, like, wow, this, the joy, this, our leader here, like, wow, you know, it's, it's an act of love with this hope of restoration and reconciliation and obedience that God is, uh, uh, he wants God to use to help bring them to their senses. And only a man who loves them so much can understand that. See, do you, you, you get the feel of what Paul is expressing in these verses in 1 through 4? You know, it is like a little jumbled here, but what is on repeat? What's his aim? What's at the center? Why is he uh, refraining? Because he wants the, to, the, for them to experience joy, a mutual joy. And what is motivating his actions or what they're thinking is inactivity is love. It's love. His actions are one of abundant love, of sacrificial love that he has for this church through all the things that he has written and refrained from writing, from the times that he's visited them and the times where he has been held up. And so a joyful ministry is marked by love. And so this comes to close here. Let me just be very specific in the application of these verses for a moment. As we even remember why we're here this morning. Installing Will as a, as a pastor. And so we have these things that mark our, are to mark our life. And so, Will, let me just be very direct for a moment. All eyes on you. <clears throat> Will, as you enter into the ministry with uh, we as the elders, to lead this people, do you love these people, redemption? Yes. Yeah. So note this, Jesus loves them a lot more than you do. Jesus laid down his life. He died for them. They're his people, and he, they, he's just entrusted their care for whatever, however long they're with us to us. And that's a sobering thing, is it not? Redemption. Do you love Will? <laughs> Even if you know him not or know him not well, like I think that those that do, <laughs> you heard the enthusiasm. And remember this, Jesus loves him. Jesus died for Will. He's a sheep just like you and I. And, and, and the chief shepherd has given him an enormous task of shepherding, leading, and teaching us. His ministry is a gift to us. His ministry is an expression of God's love to us. And we would not be left leaderless. Read your Old Testament and find what happens when people are left leaderless or without godly leadership. And so him being added to our plurality is an expression of God's love. And so note this, like, you know, when we lean into this kind of mutual ministry of joy, right? It's, it's just like in marriage, 
It's just like in marriage here, when a husband and wife lean into the love and respect that models the gospel, there's great joy in marriage, imperfect, no doubt. And the same is true, even as we pair the earlier text, this one, and like Hebrews 13, 17, so too, when a church leans into the love and respect between its leaders and its members, it produces a joy that is unique to believers because it is found only in Jesus. It's found in Christ. See, He is the aim. He is the one that we are chasing. As I said uh, in the opening, we are not chasing joy because if we chase joy, we won't achieve it. But when we chase Jesus, then we get both Christ and the joy that comes from knowing Him and being known by Him. We, we, we get both. And see, this is what we, what we want. It's even in the most difficult of times. Joy is maintained because God is in the middle of it all. His grace is being poured out on us as we follow him in obedience, as our ministry is marked by integrity and humility and help and, and, and love for God and one another. And that's where we find joy. And, and that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I don't know about you. That's, that's where I want to be because Jesus is there too. And it is a beautiful thing, an impossible thing apart from the grace of God, but a beautiful thing that I think we need to just now stop and ask God's grace to make that a reality in our church. Would you join me as we pray and, and we'll uh, lay hands on and install Will here. But join me as we pray. God in heaven, we really do need your help in this. This is an impossible thing. Just like marriage is impossible apart from you, God, our, our salvation is impossible uh, apart from you. And so too is a joy, a mutual joy in a church like this impossible without you. And so we just pause now to ask for your help to maintain that, to cultivate it, to increase and multiply joy in Jesus in this place. May it be so. Lord, if there is any in here who just don't know joy in you, who've never experienced the, the liberty and the happiness, the blessed life of turning from sin and walking in faith because of what you, Jesus, did, would you, would you bring them to faith even this morning? Would we start there, God, of just knowing joy in Christ? But also, Father, there are those that are wounded, or even just jaded because of hurt or disobedience or whatever it might be, God, would you heal and restore even in those broken places? Would you mark redemption as a place of joy, as a place where people are fired up about knowing you, Jesus, and of growing in you? May that mark our church, but we really need your help to do so. So increase these things, these ingredients, Lord. May they be true in our lives. Help us in the moment as we just seek to be faithful as you, Jesus, were perfectly faithful all the way to the cross. And we pray it now in Jesus' name and all redemption said, amen, amen. <laughs>